0: I'd invite you to turn to the little epistle to Titus, the epistle of Paul to Titus in chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 14. Titus is right before Hebrews, if you're looking for that and can't find it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. If you like to read the comics, You may have read this Peanuts cartoon a while back. Charlie Brown is talking to his friend Linus. He says, you know, life for me is just too much. I've been confused since the day I was born. There's probably some of you can identify (laughs) with that. I've been confused since the day I was born. He said, I think what's the problem is that we've been thrown into life too quickly, and we didn't have time to prepare for it. And Linus said, what do you want, Charlie Brown, a chance to warm up first? Christmas comes before we've had a chance to warm up. It seems like it comes earlier and earlier. On Halloween, in a department store in Wichita Falls, Texas, there was a section of Halloween costumes and a section for Christmas decorations. Did you know that before Thanksgiving, Santa Claus had already come to Toronto, New York City, Chicago, and Tulsa, Oklahoma? We haven't had time to really warm up. And so if we're going to get ready for Christmas, we better get ready in a hurry. And I don't know of any text that can help us do that any better than the one I have read. As we kind of reorient our minds to the meaning of Christmas. For Christmas is the coming of Christ and we know that we haven't exhausted all that means just just by recalling an event that happened 2,000 years ago. The meaning of Christmas is much deeper than that much more immediate, much more ultimate. Christmas celebrates the past. And so the text says that grace has appeared. The New Testament word is best translated, grace became visible. The invisible became visible. And it's a metaphorical reference to the incarnation, that night of nights, when the invisible God became visible to man. And because it's so heavy in its content, it needs to be looked at like you look at a diamond from three angles. The claim of that statement, its content and its communication. The claim, grace has appeared, is a claim of the pre-existence of Jesus. To say something has become visible or became visible is to imply that that had a previous existence unknown to man. So when they came to Bethlehem to see Him born, they came to see Him who had always been. For you see, Jesus did not come into being in Bethlehem. He came into visibility. He had always been. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Before there was time and space, before there was a Hebrew nation and a giver of the law, there is Jesus co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Now, if the incarnation in Bethlehem is the claim of the pre-existence of Christ, What is that, the content of that divine self-disclosure? In other words, what did man see when they saw God for the first time? Or if they could write a word, one word, over that divine self-disclosure, what would that word be? Would it be greatness or wrath or power or glory? No, it was the word grace For when they saw God for the first time, they thought of grace, the greatest word in the Christian vocabulary, the keynote word in Pauline theology, the watchword of Protestant Reformation, the shorthand word for God's activity in the world, giving man the greatest gift, when He deserves the greatest punishment. When they saw God for the first time, they saw grace made visible. Now some missed that because they were looking for something else. The first indication of it is in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus got His disciples together and He said, Now who do men say that I am? And, some, and Peter said, Some are saying that you are John the Baptist come back from the dead. John the Baptist caused quite a stir for between the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament there was no word from God. Four hundred years of silence from Malachi to Matthew, not a peep out of God. And then all of a sudden there came from the wilderness this wild man wearing a camel's hair suit Drink and eating uh, a grasshoppers and he looked like a prophet and he sounded like one and he called the people down to the river and he preached these scorching sermons and just when his ministry was at its peak Jesus was just beginning his ministry and John the Baptist got in trouble with Herod and lost his head literally and so when Jesus came preaching the same kind of message Herod, tormented by his guilty conscience, said, that has to be John the Baptist coming back from the dead. That's where all that started. And Peter said, some are saying that you're Elijah. If you've ever been in a Jewish home at the feast of the Passover, feast of of Pentecost, you will see an empty chair by the table and the host will tell you that chair is reserved for Elijah. And he'll tell you if he's an Orthodox Jew, that the Old Testament prophet, the last one in the last book of the Old Testament, in the last paragraph said that God was sending Messiah, but prior to his coming, Elijah would come. Perhaps they said, they're they saying, you're Elijah, or maybe Jeremiah. And so Jesus looked at his disciples, looked at Peter, and said, now you know me better than anybody. My life is an open book before you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said you're the Christos, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, Messiah, the anointed one. For you see, the Jews had a dream that somebody would come one day to reestablish the glory of Israel. For the history of the Jewish nation was a history of one holocaust after another. If you think that, Holocaust in Germany was terrible when two-thirds of the Jews were exterminated. Just one Holocaust after another. But there was one time in Jewish history called the Golden Age under the rule of David when he stretched out their boundaries from Dan to Beersheba and Israel became a world power that was called the Golden Age. But when David died, Everything went back to the routine, same as usual. And the Jews looked for that day when God would send somebody. Now watch this. Jesus did not come to establish, to sit upon a throne of an earthly kingdom. He came to hang on a cross. He did not come to rout the enemy out of Jewish land, he came to forgive our sins and wash away our guilt. And that leads to the communication of this divine self-disclosure for Jesus blew their minds away at Caesarea Philippi when he said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die. Don't you know my agenda? Don't you understand my purpose is not to establish an earthly kingdom but to die for man's sins. And Simon Peter said, Never will it happen for it was far from the Jewish mind to think of Messiah as a suffering servant. But the good news that Christmas celebrates is this. History takes its finger and points to that event in the past and declares that God in grace has sent a savior to the world to forgive our sins, to bring light to our darkness, to bring liberation to our bondage. Not an earthly throne, not an earthly king, but a savior who redeems man from his sin. And so the preacher at Oxford said, it is the temper of this modern age to cry with despair. Look at what our world has come to when in that first century the Christian shouted with joy, look at what has come to the world. Christmas celebrates the past. Christmas anticipates the future. And so the text said that we look, we await the appearing of His glory. That Greek word await is a word that means to anticipate with such assurance that we already welcome it. So the author was saying, we anticipate with such expectation the second coming of Christ so that we even welcome that advent. It's in every New Testament book. How dare we ignore in the celebration of Christmas that preeminent theology, that imminent advent of our Lord's return. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a man. He had been reading about Star Wars and about nuclear holocausts and all that stuff. And he asked me this question. He said, Preacher, do you feel like, do you think that it's possible that in our lifetime we'll see a nuclear annihilation? I said, well, um, I don't think we have to be too smart to know that that's imminently possible. Let me raise that to another level, I said. I think with every confrontation of world powers, of the world powers, it makes a nuclear annihilation or holocaust not just possible but probable. And with every confrontation, The fact that this world will go up in smoke becomes even more probable. Uh, A few months ago, a man named Bitzoid in the Detroit Free Press described what would happen if somebody exploded a nuclear bomb 6,500 feet above Detroit, Michigan. He said if you exploded a one megaton bomb over Detroit, now a megaton bomb is 80 times the size of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima and we have bombs that are 100 times as powerful as one megaton. You can just put that, kind of get the picture of that. And he said if you explode a a warhead, a nuclear bomb 6,500 feet above Detroit, one megaton in power, it would create a fireball a hundred million degrees centigrade, which is 15 times hotter than the surface of the sun. And in one instant, 300,000 people and everything around them would be reduced to cinders. Now that's quite a prospect. And I said to my friend, it is possible that in our lifetime... That is imminent. That we will see that happen. A lot of people believe that. As a matter of fact, just not a while, just a while back, students at Columbia University voted for the faculty to to stockpile cyanide capsules so they could kill themselves if somebody exploded a nuclear bomb in America. And sociologists tell us that the reason why there is a rise in, of suicides among young people is that they fear the prospect of living in an age that is burned to cinders with a nuclear blast. Now that's quite a, something to look forward to. You say, well, you are show sure a doomful preacher. Let me say something. Listen carefully. I tell you that there is something toward which we can look this morning not with fear and dread but with hope and expectancy that's even more imminent and more probable than a nuclear annihilation and that is that the Lord will return in our lifetime. It is more imminent and probable that before this day is over our Lord will return than it is that we'll be destroyed with a nuclear bomb. How dare we ignore that preeminent theology? Jesus talked about it. He said to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, whoever is ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous generation of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the clouds of glory. And he started his trilogy of parables of the, of the talents and the, and the virgins and the coming judgment with these words. Hereafter you'll see the Son of Man seated on a throne of power with His angels coming in clouds of glory. And to Caiaphas' question, are you the Son of God? He said, you have said it hereafter. You'll see the Son of God seated on thrones with His angels and coming in the clouds of glory. And a casual reading of the New Testament is enough to know that every writer in the New Testament lived in the anticipation of the coming of Christ. Every morning they scanned the heavens for the first flaming of his advent feet and they were supported with a deep conviction that that the Christ would return and vindicate them and they endured all kinds of suffering and persecution because of that conviction. And the last book in the New Testament talks about a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and ends with a shout, even so come Lord Jesus. And when he comes, What a contrast will be his second coming to his first. He came that first time clutched in the arms of a Hebrew peasant woman. He'll come the second time the sovereign Lord of the universe to a whole retinue of angels. He came the first time and was placed in a cattle trough. He'll come the second time in clouds of glory to establish a universal empire. He came the first time to the muffled cry of a helpless baby. He'll come the second time to the blast of God's trumpet, raising the dead and summoning the nations to Himself. He came the first time in the meanness of crushing poverty. He'll come the second time to the pomp and circumstance of a royal carnation. He came the first time, the outshining of God's grace to save. He'll come the second time, the outshining of God's glory to establish a universal kingdom. Now, is that your blessed hope, as Paul calls it? Is that your blessed hope? Do you live with that anticipation and expectancy to such degree that you've already welcomed Him as though He had already come? Then if you haven't, you're not ready to celebrate Christmas. One last thought, please. Not only does Christmas celebrate the past and anticipate the future, Christmas consecrates the present His glory has come, His glory will come, and the scripture says in the the interim His glory is to come. That is His godliness should come, should appear. Now watch this, listen here, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. That's what history celebrates. Looking for the blessed hope, that's what Christians anticipate instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age that's what christmas consecrates for you see christ not has not just come has come or will come christ is come And because He is come, that is, He is present in the present, that consecrates every moment of this life and everything about it. And the word instructing here, it's teaching in the King James, means that Christ has come and has not left. And He gives us the ability, He leads us, instructs, the word is training, He trains us in how to live in the present, that is, he not only celebrates the past and anticipates the future, He consecrates the present. He makes the present different. Let me tell you what happened to me last Christmas. I get so worked up at Christmas time. I mean, I've always, I've always had the you, know, the, you know, the Christmas was always the best thing for me. I mean, was, I have so many wonderful memories of Christmas as a kid, but I'll not go into those gory details. But it's always been just, just wonderful for me. And last Christmas, I thought, man, we're, I'm gonna have the greatest Christmas. Man, I'm a, I bought a bunch of presents and decorated, and I was gonna have to lead this church into the greatest Christmas celebration we've ever had, we did, and about a week, the week of Christmas, I started getting this depression, this downer. That thing lasted after Christmas. I mean, I was so depressed and down. And one day I was, you know, having a prayer time, and God spoke to my heart. True story, God said this, not out loud, but to my heart. Let me tell you what, when he so- talks to your heart, it, it, it's, you know, into your spirit, it, it's, 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 it's more dynamic than when, you know, if he were to talk out loud, I'm convinced of that. But he said, you know, you've done a big deal about the celebration of a baby in the manger somewhere, and you've made a big deal of that, but you, you, you've ignored me. He said, said, you haven't walked with me. You've, you've gone into all this kind of Christmas celebration and you haven't, you've neglected your prayer time and you, you haven't had any fellowship with me. You've just been thinking about something that happened 2,000 years ago and, and you're not even conscious that I'm alive in the present. And I remember the words of E.M. Bales. Listen to these words. He said, it soon becomes a weary business when we strain, keep straining our eyes to a distant past to try to find some heroic figure, we try to imagine as good as we can. What we need, said Ian e. Bales, is the living God in the present. That's right. So, what did you bring this morning to this service? The wor- a worry about a teenager? Or the fear that your Social Security is not going to hold out, or a bad lab report, or diminishing spiritual resources? Did you bring that? You, there's a thousand different needs brought into this service this morning. Bad test grade, etc. What you don't need is just to hear about the birth of a baby. That's not enough. What you need and I need is the News that he is in the present tense, that he has come to this moment that I live. You say, Well, great, that's that you know, Christ lived 2,000 years ago and ascended to heaven. How can I know him like Peter and James and John? Well, listen, Pentecost declares that you don't have to know him like Peter and James and John to know him. And the Apostle Paul is an example of that. You say, well, he was an extraordinary man. No, he wasn't. The Bible doesn't hold up the Apostle Paul as an extraordinary man and say, don't you wish you were like him. What the Bible does is hold up the life of an ordinary man made extraordinary by the presence of God in him. For me to live is Christ, he said. So that what happened was, that the Apostle Paul stopped celebrating the birth of a baby and began to realize that that man came out of that manger and lived and has never died. And that in the person of Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is much as much present now as He was then and sanctifies and consecrates this moment. And that says that this living God and all the resources of the new birth and the transforming power of this living God is available to everyone in this place so that He is alive and present in every moment you live. And you can shout hallelujah for that. Augustine was a wild man, young man. He ran with prostitutes. Augustine one night went into this little garden and there he found the Lord. He was saved, increasingly saved. And he was walking down the street one day and he saw one of those prostitutes he had known. And he just walked right past her, just kind of spoke and she stopped him and said, Augustine, it's me. And he looked back at her and he said, yes, but this is not me. And Gertrude Bahana, you may have heard her testimony. I've heard it several times on tape. Born and raised in New York City to wealth. She was aristocratic, blue blood, a debutante. She said, The only time I ever saw a Bible until I was a grown woman was the Gutenberg Bible in the Smithsonian. She never went to church. She married three times, divorced three husbands, became an alcoholic. And one night at the insistence of a friend, at the witness of a friend, she got out on her knees and prayed to God for him to come into her life. And Gertrude Bahana says in her testimony, I don't know what happened to me, all I know is that when I got out on my knees, I was a sinner. When I got up off my knees, I was a saint. And one day one of her friends saw her and stopped her and said, for God's sake, Gertrude, what has happened to you? And Gertrude Bahana looked at her friend and said, My God, that's what's happened to me. There's a happening here this morning. It is that this living God, not, 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 not a God in a, in a manger, not a baby, this living God is the happening and He makes all things new. And he consecrates the present, the present with such dynamic change that a man walks out of here, walks in a sinner, walks out a saint, and can say to the world, My God has happened to me. James Plyitz tells about the lady who made the trip to Israel and she was checking out, flying out of Tel Aviv. And the security guards were checking her luggage. This happened just recently. And they were taking, she had a nativity scene in there. You know, you get a nativity scene in a camel. You know, everybody does when they go to Israel. And they were checking out these, this nativity scene and the security guard was checking every uh, figure in the nativity scene. And this is what he said. He said, we have to check each one of these to see if there are explosives in them. Isn't it a paradox that that baby in Bethlehem is the most explosive character who's ever lived. And when he enters into life, there is such a dynamic, there is such explosion, there is such change that that person is made new. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, it's made possible. It happens when a man opens his life up by faithful surrender to this living Lord. It's happened to you. I've prayed with some of these college students as they work their way through God's call. It's happened to some of you. I've talked to those adults who have have lived for God for years. It's happened to you. We're going to baptize two little girls, precious children tonight that are now forever different. They were precious and sweet and innocent and pure. Even before last week or whenever. And yet, having sinned against God, separated from Him now, Jesus comes into their precious lives and they'll never be the same again. Qualified for heaven forever. Isn't that wonderful? You say, how does it happen? It happens when men trust Jesus Christ and open up their lives to Him. The story and I'm through when the earthquake occurred in Anchorage, Alaska. You, you, you heard about it years ago. The governor of Alaska got all these letters from these folks whose houses and stuff were ruined and they were asking for the, this thing, this government to do this for them and the government to buy this and pay for this and give me this, et cetera, et cetera. And the governor said that he got a letter from a little boy. Had a three by five card in it, and on that three by five card, he had scotch tape to that three by five card, two nickels. And the little boy said, Use this where it's needed the most. If you need any more, just let me know. The happening of Christmas is this that a man comes into the present moment to encounter Christ and says, Here's my life. You just take that life of mine and you use it because it's yours from now on. And when that happens, God consecrates the present. Let's pray together. Father, there is no message any more exciting than the message of Christmas that celebrates the past, anticipates the future, and consecrates the present. What we're more concerned about now, Father, is this present moment, the need of it. And I pray, Lord, that in a very special way, now you'd draw near to us and to our heart and that you'd help us to know what your will for us in this moment is. I pray that it'll be the most sacred moment of our entire life because it's the moment when we have encountered the invisible and begun to live like He wants us to live. Because I pray in His name, died for us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. There are three invitations. One invitation, and this is the desire of my heart to see you come to know the Lord this morning to be saved. Open up your life to Him in faith, who is immediately available to your faith. I'm not asking have you ever joined a church or that kind of stuff, but have you ever trusted Jesus Christ and just made available to Him your life? Maybe it's worth two nickels, one loaf of bread, two fishes, whatever second invitation this morning is to come and join our church to begin the celebration of walking with God's people in a place he's chosen to do his work or perhaps this morning to come and rededicate your life to the Lord that he might consecrate the present moment while we stand to sing we invite your response we'll not wait long for you to come